Well, this Christmas uh, season, uh, or this Christmas or season, or getting there, or leading up to it, uh, and so this morning, I, I really want us to to reflect on one of the most astounding doctrines of our Christian faith, and that is the wonder of the incarnation. Uh, the Word became flesh and, and dwelled among us. Uh, now, the Bible teaches that our words reveal our minds and our hearts. Uh, what comes out of our mouth is what uh, we are and who we are in our hearts. And it says that Jesus Christ is the Word of God, and so Jesus reveals to us the heart and mind of God. And it's said, Scripture teaches us that Jesus is the final Word from God, about God. In Hebrews 1, verse 1 to 3, it says, God, after He spoke a long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways in these last days has spoken to us in His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things and through whom also He made the world. And He is the radiance of His glory and the exact representation of His nature and upholds all things by the word of His power. And in uh, and, and the Gospel of John Chapter 1, verse 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And so the, Jesus is the final Word, Jesus is the eternal Word, Jesus is also the creative Word of God. Uh, verse 3 of John chapter 1 says, All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him nothing came into being that has come into being. Psalm 33, 9 says, For He spoke and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. And of course, Colossians 1.16 says that He created all things, both in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones, dominions, rulers, and authorities. All things have been created through Him and for Him. He is before all things and in Him all things hold together. So Jesus cannot be a created being. He is the eternal God, all-powerful ruler over all. And then, of course, we read that Jesus Christ is also the incarnate Word of God. In John chapter 1, verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. And so, John, the Gospel of John really teaches us two major truths about the person of Jesus Christ. And that is that Jesus is God and that Jesus is man. He is the, the God-man. He's not merely a divine human or a human God. No, no. He is fully God and fully man. He is truly Emmanuel. God with us. God for us. God in us. And so if you're not there, please turn to John chapter 1. Uh, I just want to read that, that first 18 verses for us in John chapter 1. Uh, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him nothing came into being that has come into being. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There came a man from, sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. There was the true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him to them, he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw these glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. 
John testified about him and cried out, saying, This was the one of whom I said, He who comes after me has higher rank than I, for he existed before me. For of his fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time, the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, has explained Him. Let me pray for us. Father, we, we come to You uh, in need of Your grace, in need of Your enablement. Lord, I pray through Your Spirit that You have prepared our hearts to hear from Your Word. Lord, to receive Your Word. Lord, we pray that it would find fertile soil in our hearts, that it will shoot down roots into our lives that will bear fruit to your glory, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So really, I just want to focus on, on verse 14 this morning. Um, and the simpler outline is the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and the Word displayed the glory of God. Now, of course, here from this, uh, the context, the word, John made very clear is God from, from verse 1, that he was, uh, from the beginning, he was with God, he was God, uh, and that he created all things, and that in him was life, and the life was the light of men. Uh, the word was really the pre-existing second person of the triune God. He has always existed. And John called him the Word, uh, that is the wisdom, that is the revelation, the powerful self-expression of God who spoke the world really into existence and who upholds His whole creation through the Word of His power. Now, the Word, the second person of the Trinity became flesh. The uncreated, eternal Son of God at a predetermined time became, took upon himself, humanity. And this must surely be the most profound miracles of all miracles. Because really, the infinite became finite. The supernatural confined itself to the natural. The eternal complied with time. The invisible became visible. The, the, that which, when viewed uh, unveiled, would be blinding to us, was veiled so that we could behold it. Uh, that which is transcendent became imminent. That which was far off became near. That which no human mind could fathom now could perceive by beholding a person. A life. And so the Word added to His deity humanity. And He did so without any, pardon me, <coughs> without any change to His deity. The Word became flesh but still remained to be the Word, still remained to be God. The Son of God assumed humanity without laying aside his divinity. The divine and human nature of Jesus Christ became united in one person without being fused, without being confused, without being mixed or altered in any way. The two natures of the incarnate Word remained unchanging, indivisible, inseparable. The properties of each nature preserved through their union in the person of Jesus Christ. And why is it so important? Why is it so important that we get this right, that we understand it? Why did the church spend decades defining the exact terms so that they'd be very careful when they articulate the incarnation of Christ? Well, the simple answer is our salvation depends on it. 
The way you think and understand the person of Christ reflects the way you think and understand the nature of salvation. If Christ is not fully man, then He is not a true substitute for us. And if He's not, if he's not fully God, He cannot be the mediator between God and man. And so without this what is called the hypostatic union of the divine and human natures in the person of Christ, our salvation would simply not be possible. Our salvation is seated and secured in Christ Jesus. I mean, the, the incarnation really forms the basis of our understanding of our salvation. The incarnation helps us see that salvation is only found in Christ. In Christ. That little preposition is probably the most important little word in the doctrine of salvation because it speaks of our union with Christ. In Christ, in Himself, and only in Himself, is humanity reconciled to God. Only in Him, the divine and the human, is reconciled. And so people, salvation cannot be abstracted, it cannot be separated, it cannot be divorced from the person of Jesus Christ. Because salvation is Christ. In salvation, our persons are joined to Christ, to, to His person by faith through the Spirit. Salvation is not something that we can have, receive, or be given that is separate from Christ. Salvation is not an object, it's not a package, it's not a, it's not a separate thing that can be given us apart from Jesus Christ. Our, Christ's work, His work of justification, His work of sanctification, redemption, cannot be given to us separate from Christ. And I think we in the, in the, in the more reformed uh, tradition where we make a lot of justification, so much so that justification almost equals salvation in our thinking and our understanding. And we need to be very careful that we don't separate justification from the person of Christ. We only have justification because we are in Christ. These truths, these blessings, these benefits are ours because we are in Him, in Christ. There is no salvation apart from the person of Jesus Christ. And it is only when we are in Him that we are saved. It is only in Him that we are reconciled to God. It is only in Him that we can partake of the benefits of salvation which He had worked. And we do so when we are united to Him by faith through the work of the Holy Spirit. In saving us, Jesus does not offer us His work of justification, of sanctification, of redemption, as if these truths stand separate to Him. He offers us Himself. And when we receive Him, that's when we are justified. That's when we are sanctified. That's when we are redeemed. 
That's when we are adopted. These things become ours when we receive Him, believe in Him, are baptized in Him, are united with Him by faith through the Holy Spirit. People, if there is no interest in Jesus, if there is no love in your heart for Jesus, if there is no desire for Him, can there be salvation? Second Corinthians 13.5 exhorts us to test yourself, to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. Or do you not recognize this about yourself, that Jesus Christ is in you unless you fail the test? To be saved is to be in Christ. It is not enough just to know about His work to believe He died on the cross, to, to believe that He was raised to life. It is not enough to merely believe things about Christ. You need to be in Christ to benefit from them. Salvation is found in Jesus Christ alone. And we must never separate the work of Christ from the person of Christ. And because the Word became flesh, because the Son of God added humanity to His deity, because the person of Christ, both fully God and fully man, fully reconciled, fully united, because of that, when we are in Christ, then we are united with Him. We are reconciled to the Father and we are in union with God. Jesus prayed in His high priestly prayer in John 17, 21, for those who believe in Him, may all be one, may they all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. And that's the wonder of the incarnation. That is possible. Our salvation is possible because Christ came and took on flesh. And when we believe in Him, we are reconciled to God because we are baptized into Christ. And so because of the incarnation, because God took on flesh, because He became a man, the God-man, He was able to die. He was able to die on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins. And that's what, what's so wonderful about Romans when, when, when Paul explains the gospel in Romans 6. He says that when Christ was crucified, when He was buried, when He was raised to new life, we who believe in Him as if we were with Him being crucified, with Him being buried, with Him being raised to new life through this union that we have by the Spirit through faith. It's because of the incarnation also that God can truly relate to us. He understands us. Christ suffered the things that He had to suffer to learn obedience. He knows our weaknesses. He experienced them without sin, without ever succumbing to sin. But He knows you. He knows what you go through. He understands and that's because of the wonder of the incarnation. Because of the incarnation, we have an example of godliness to follow. Christ displayed the character of God to us in human flesh. He showed us what the love of God is like. That we could imitate by looking at Him. And because of the incarnation, we can know God. Verse 18 says, No one has seen God at any time. 
The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father explains Him. If you want to know what God is like, look to Jesus Christ. Read the Gospels. And the wonder of the incarnation is that God came to us. He became like one of us to save us, to help us, and to make God known to us. Verse 14 says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Really, that word means to tabernacle among us. Christ, the Word incarnate, came and pitched His tent among us for, for the 33 years that He lived on this earth. Now, I think John picked this word tabernacle specifically because the tabernacle in the Old Testament sort of serves as a foreshadow of the word incarnate, of, of Christ, foreshadowing Christ in His first coming. And what was lost at the fall, that communion that God had with man, God intended to restore. Remember, He created man in His image so that we would have fellowship with Him. And so God's desire is to be with His people. And so after redeeming Israel from Egypt, He commanded His newly redeemed people to construct a sanctuary for Him, a tabernacle. Why? So that He may dwell among them, Exodus 25, 8 tells us. And so the incarnation makes it possible for God to tabernacle among His people. God incarnate lived among His people. And like the, there, are, there are many uh, sort of co correspondence that we can draw between the tabernacle and Christ. I'll just mention a few. The tabernacle was God's dwelling place. That's where He would come down uh, and, and, and upon, upon the, the mercy seat, upon the mercy seats on the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, that's where people would know that uh, go, God is there in our midst over the tabernacle. And Jesus dwelled among His people. His glory was manifested to the people. They saw His wisdom. They saw His power. They saw His righteousness. So He dwelled among His people. The tabernacle was a place of worship where, where sacrifices were brought, where offerings were brought, and blood was shed to atone for sin. So that fellowship between God and His people could be maintained. Now, of course, the Word became flesh and offered Himself as the once-for-all sacrifice for sin, to atone for our sins so that we may be redeemed, that we may be reconciled, that we may come and offer worship to God through Christ, being in Christ. It is a place where we bring our prayers the tabernacle, that's where they went to pray. Now we pray in the name of Christ. The tabernacle was a place where the law was kept. Where the will of God was preserved. And when the Word became flesh in the fullness of time, when God sent forth His Son to, to be born of a woman, born under the law so that He may redeem those who are under the law and adopt them through faith as sons. Christ, the incarnate Word, fulfilled the very Word of God, the law, the prophets, and He lived in perfect obedience to the Father. And He proclaimed and performed the perfect will of God, living a life of love. The tabernacle was also a place where God met with His people, it is sometimes called the tent of meeting. And, and I love that section in, in Exodus 33 where we read that God spoke to Moses as a friend face to face in this tent of meeting. And, and when he would depart, Joshua would linger behind. He couldn't leave. Why? Because God is there. He tabernacled with God. He fellowshiped with Him. And the same with Christ. We can... Meet with God in Christ Jesus. No one comes to the Father but through 
Him. John 14, 6. He is the only mediator, the one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, 1 Timothy 2, 5. And there is, He is the only one who can span the gulf between humanity and deity because He Himself is the God-man. He Himself is Emmanuel, God with us. And so the Word became flesh and the Word dwelt among us and the Word revealed to us the glory of God. We saw His glory. The we, of course, refers here to the disciples, including John, the Apostle John, who spent years of his public ministry with Him. And they saw Him, they beheld Him, they intently looked at Him, they examined Him, they stared at Him, they touched Him. If we read First John 1, and they saw His glory manifested. They saw the glory of God, though veiled by His flesh, they saw with eyes of faith. Well, they saw them visibly at the Mount of Transfiguration when, when Jesus was transfigured and His, and his uh, face shone like a sun and His clothes were, were white as light and with Him appeared Moses and, uh, and Elijah and they fell on their faces in worship before Him. But they saw more than, than that brief moment. They saw His divine glories, His divine perfections, really in His wisdom, in His power, in His goodness, in His grace, in His truth that He spoke. And they saw also His, his human glories in, in the perfection of what human uh, glory can, can accomplish, His, his moral affirmation that, that they was the, He had no sin. And He was meek and gentle and humble. He had a servant's heart. But here, John focuses on the glory of the one and only Son of God. And the English there is a little bit translate, misleading because it, it can be understood as if Jesus became the Son of God. And that's not what John is communicating here. Uh, the Son of God we've already seen is the eternal Son of God. The context makes that very clear in verse 1 and verse 18. And He was the Son of God before He became incarnated. But it is in His incarnation that we see His glory, His one-of-a-kindness so to speak, his uniqueness. It's, he's talking about the Son, the unique Son, the one and only Son of God, the prominent Son of God. And his glory is that he was full of grace and truth. Perhaps he was thinking again of Moses, who kept asking the Lord, Lord, show me your glory, show me your glory. And God condescended and put him in a cleft in the rock and moved past him. But what Moses saw was not a spectacular vision, but he heard a stupendous sermon. The Word of God spoke and said, the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, abounding in grace and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, yet will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. God is gracious, but He is also truthful. And so he said that sinners will be dealt with. And he's also gracious towards sinners. And that really can only be reconciled in the person of Jesus Christ. And so we see that the unique Son of God, full of grace and truth, revealed grace to us. 
God is gracious. And grace simply means, as you all know, unmerited favor, really, that God shows towards humanity. It is the opposite of merit. It is undeserved kindness, unearned favor. And the Word of God distinguishes between two types of grace. There is common grace and there is special grace or saving grace. Common grace is that God gives to all men regardless of whether they acknowledge Him to be God or not. The sunshine arises on the, on, the, on the evil as well as on the good. He sends rain on the righteous as well as on the unrighteous. And so the fact that unredeemed man is allowed to live and to flourish and to enjoy the many blessings of life at least for the season of the life that the Lord in His common grace has bestowed upon them. That is called common grace. It's undeserved. All men need to be judged, really, immediately because of sin. We are born in sin. And as Romans 5 tells us, we all sin. It's not only because of the sin of Adam, but it's we all sin ourselves and therefore are under God's judgment. And so when He allows unregenerate, rebellious people to live and to enjoy His creation, that is grace, that is common grace. And we've seen Jesus showing common grace to many of those He ministered to them. You remember of the, of the ten uh, lepers whom he healed and only one returned to give thanks, to acknowledge him for his kindness. And then, of course, there is saving grace. That is when God, through the person of Jesus Christ, saves a sinner, not just temporarily, but eternally. Romans 5, 8 tells us, while we were Sinners, Christ died for us. That is grace. That is grace. God is gracious towards those whom He saves. Not on the basis of what they have done, but solely on the basis because He is gracious. And His grace transforms a sinner to a saint. Children of wrath becomes children of God. Those who are dead in their sin becomes alive to Christ. And the Son of God displayed His glory by saving sinners by grace through faith. When we, we see so many examples of that. Think about wretched Saul who comes from a highly religious background. And yet he described himself as a blasphemer, a persecutor, a violent transgressor, who was in the act of persecuting the church, persecuting Christ, when he was graciously arrested by the Lord. His eyes were blinded, his knees buckled, and his heart broke by the simple words, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Why are you persecuting me? And by the time Ananias came to him, he was converted. He was regenerate. He was restored. He was renewed. He was transformed by the grace of God. A blasphemer was changed into a worshiper of Christ. A violent aggressor was, became a humble follower. A persecutor of Christ became a sent one of Christ. Amazing grace. Amazing grace. Speaking about amazing grace, John Newton was born in a Christian home. For the first six years of his life, he was taught the scriptures, he heard the truth of the gospel, and he was dearly loved by his parents. And then, sadly, 
His parents passed away and he became an orphan and was sent to his relatives who abused him, who mistreated him and ridiculed him for showing an interest in Christ. And when he could not tolerate it anymore, he fled and he joined the Royal Navy as a young boy. And his life just went downhill from there. He became known as a drunkard and a brawler and ultimately a deserter. Deserting the Royal Navy, he fled and, and, and really found uh, himself attached to a Portuguese slave trader. And this slave trader had a wife who hated Newton. And she treated him like an animal. She cruelly abused him. Sometimes he had to fight the dogs for something to eat. This is while his, her husband was away. And he finally managed to escape her and found himself on another slave trader's ship. At one time, he apparently broke into the, the ship's uh, supply of whiskey or rum. I can't remember which one. And he got so drunk that he fell overboard and he was close to drowning when a shipmate harpooned him and dragged him onto the ship. And he had this gaping scar in his side. Many years later, he could still put his fist in his side. And then one night, they were traveling and they were on the way to Scotland and a massive storm hit the ship. And it went on for days and the ship was taking on water and he was sent downstairs to pump out uh, or to man the pumps. And he was afraid because he said, I'm down here and this ship sinks, I'm drowning, I, I'm, I'm going to die. And so he started crying out to God and remember the verses of God's love and the verses that speaks about his life and his death. Verses that he heard as a child. And at that moment, he was marvelously converted and transformed. And he became a highly educated teacher and preacher of God's Word, even preaching before the Queen of England. And the new life Newton found was reflected in that famous words of his hymn, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. Because Christ opened his eyes. Because he was united to Christ, to the person of Christ. Not just an idea or a doctrine. Although doctrine is important, we need to understand that it that is what Christ did. But unless you are clinging to Him, there is no salvation. And of course, the unique Son did not only reveal God's grace, but also God's truth. And really, if you think about it, it is His grace that allows us to receive His truth. God, we already saw in Exodus 34, 6, that He is abounding in loving kindness and truth. That He is the God of truth, Isaiah 65, 16 tells us. That He desires truth in our inner word parts, Psalm 51, 6. That He hates a lying tongue. In fact, only those who are truthful are allowed in his tabernacle and dwell on his holy hill. That is to be in his presence. So it's therefore no surprise to find that the second person of the Trinity is called the way and the truth and the life. And that the Holy Spirit is called what? The spirit of truth. God's nature is characterized by truth and therefore Christ the God-man was characterized by truth. Furthermore, we read that the Bible says that God cannot lie. It is impossible for Him to lie and that His Word is truth. And so when God speaks, He speaks truth. And so when it comes to the truth about God, about biblical truth, about theology, about doctrine, about the gospel, 
There is no such thing as a human opinion about that that trumps his truth. There is no argument. There is no debate. His word on the matter is final. It is authoritative. It is infallible. We live in an era where truth is often considered relative. That your truth and my truth can be diametrically opposed and still both be true. It's inconceivable. It's deluded. But Christ is the truth. And when we speak the gospel, we speak truth. Absolute truth. Not relative truth. Absolute truth. Truth that is infallible, inerrant in its original autographs about everything that it speaks about. And so the Son of God revealed truth to us about man and about God. About man, Jesus said that man has a serious heart problem. That from his heart comes evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slanders. These things do not defile a man. Man is defiled because they are in man. That is in his heart. That is who he is. That is who we are before Christ. The man will always seek to blame someone else for our sin. No, no, they just didn't, they just don't know any better. We need to educate them more. No, no, so they, they're just a product of their past. It's because others sinned against them. That's why they are sinners. No, no, it's just because of the bad influences, bad parents, bad friends, bad video games, bad whatever. Blaming the devil. The devil made me do it. And the truth is men are sinful and evil because men has a depraved nature, a corrupt nature. And when they choose to sin, they sin because they are sinners. That's because who they are in their core. Rebellious, selfish, prideful. Reminds me of a little girl who was fighting with her brother and uh, pulling his hair and kicking his shins. And when mom finally managed to pull her away from her little brother... She asked her, why did you allow the devil to put into your heart to pull your brother's hair and kick his shins? And she said, well, he may have put the idea in my mind to pull his hair, but kicking his shins was all mine. There's a lot of theological truth in that. Because it doesn't matter who says what. Ultimately, we are the ones who choose to sin. We choose to disobey God. And the truth is, a man is a sinner. And because of that, he's hopeless and helpless and under God's judgment, under God's condemnation, under God's wrath. And man needs a savior. That is indisputable truth. But God, Christ incarnate God, the word of God also revealed the truth about God. That God is a saving God. That he is a good God. That he is a loving God. That he is a powerful God. Sinful man, again, looks at the world, the fallen world, and, and blames God. It's God that caused all this, and therefore I don't believe in Him. It's like a little bit weird reasoning. 
And say, if God is loving and good, why is there so much evil in this world? Or perhaps God is good, but He's not powerful enough to do something about it. Others think God is distant, He's uninvolved, He's uninterested. But the incarnation shows that God is very interested, very involved, very much caring and, and loving and, and powerful to save man from his sin. Do you realize this? That no other religion has a God who is a saving God by nature. All other religions require us to do works to offer up sacrifices to appease Him, to follow requirements that He demands or they demand. Only God, look at the, the miserable condition of those whom He made in His image, who were hopeless and helpless in their sin, and then He acted. He entered their world, our world, To save us. No other God of any other religion comes close to that idea. And the cross reveals God's love and God's power. Out of love, Christ humbled himself and stepped out of heaven, the glories of heaven, and entered our world take on humanity and as a God man he lived that perfect life pleasing to God was led by the spirit perfect obedience to the father willingly endured the shame of the cross the wrath of God on this on for, for, for sin sacrificed his life in payment for the sin of others not his own he died he was buried and he was powerfully raised to life again. He has power to overcome sin and death. And he was raised to newness of life. Ascended to the heaven is now interceding for his own. The truth is, God cares. The truth is, God is love. The truth is, God is life. The truth is, God is light. God made a way. He paid the price. He reconciled humanity to Himself in Himself in Christ Jesus. So that those who believe in Him, that is in the God-man Jesus Christ, will not perish but have abundant life, eternal life. And so the truth is Christ took on flesh and entered our world to save us. The truth is that in Him there is salvation and there is salvation in no one else, for no other name under heaven has been given among men by which we must be saved. The truth is that by God's doing, we are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, redemption. 1 Corinthians 1.30 tells us. The truth is God made us and He desires to have fellowship with us. And He doesn't save us just to leave us on the side. He saves us so that we would be in Him, with Him, fellowship with Him. There was a Persian monarch, a shah, who loved his people and, and he would, uh, really interested in his people who wanted to know them and, and so he would mingle with them in, in various disguises. And uh, one day he went to this very poor man who, who worked in the public baths. He was, he was stoking the, the fire there in the tiny cellar and he became to befriend this old man, this lowly man. And when it was mealtime, this monarch would share this poor man's coarse food and, and he would talk to this lowly and lonely subject as a friend. And again and again he would visit him and, and this man grew to love him. And then one day this monarch, the Shah, told him 
who he was, that he is in fact the king. And expecting this humble, poor man to ask some gift of him. This man just sat there gazing at him. Gazing at his ruler with love. With wonder. And finally he could speak. He says, you left your palace. Your glory. To sit with me in this dark place. To eat my coarse food, to care whether my heart was glad or sorry. On others you may bestow great and rich presents, but to me you have given yourself. It is only remained for me to pray that you would not withdraw your gift of friendship from me. That story reminds us of Christ whose birth we celebrate at Christmas, who left the glories of heaven to share himself with us. The gift of his love and his friendship will never be withdrawn from those who are in him, whom he chose to save. And we are saved when we are in him. When we are united with Him by faith through the powerful working of the Holy Spirit. We are saved because Christ took on flesh. We are saved because in Him, humanity has been reconciled with God. We are saved when we believe in Him, abide in Him. He does not offer us salvation as if that is a separate thing. He offers us Himself. That we would have fellowship with Him. That is the wonder of the incarnation. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you, Lord, for Lord, just the the glory of your word, Lord, the truth of your word, the glory of your grace, that you would <sighs> choose sinners like us to have fellowship. To find us to wash us, to renew us, to regenerate us, and to unite us with yourself for all eternity. How wonderful, how marvelous is our Savior's love for us. How amazing your grace we can but thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.